0: Well, if you didn't notice, uh, we're getting started on Advent a little early. Uh, I, I don't like listening to 94.5 until after Thanksgiving. I don't know what your situation is on the Christmas thing. That's more my vibe. Uh, but I am starting uh, here in worship a little early. You, you had an a Advent reading really from Betsy earlier, and Justin and Bebo certainly just sang an Advent song. Uh, but for some of this, it's just to get all the women in that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. And so we're going to look at the women who are in Jesus' genealogy uh, until Christmas. So let's pray before we get started. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for these dear friends. Lord, just see uh, some new faces here, some faces uh, who are coming in from out of town. Lord, it just brings me so much joy. Uh, not just because I like them, love them, but because uh, you've maintained them. or that you have kept their faith. Lord, it's a miracle that week to week uh, we continue to believe. And it's because you hang in there with us. and. Uh, So we give you thanks for that. And so, Lord, I pray uh, today uh, that this message would uh, be very personal for us, that you you would use your spirit uh, to make this ancient text come alive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think one of the fundamental questions we ask as human beings is the question, who am I? Big question. It's a question about identity. Identity if you're in a Western culture, a modern culture, uh, you answer that question very individualistically. And you essentially put forth a resume. You you say, uh, here I am. I'm some combination of my Enneagram, where I went to school, what jobs I've held, what awards or achievements I've earned, and how much money or stuff that we have. That's how we define ourselves. But in ancient cultures than in eastern cultures of the world today, you'll find a very different way of answering that question, Who am I? You'll find it answered more corporately. You'll hear answers about ethnicity and family to answer the question, Who am I? And that's the way that the biblical writers answer this question about Jesus because you see that two of the four Gospels, they start with a genealogy to answer the question, Who is Jesus? And genealogies, they serve the purpose of saying, you know, you want to know who I am? Well, here's my family tree. That's who I am. So let's find out what we can learn about Jesus by reading the genealogy in Matthew 1. Now hang in there. You ready? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose name was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, and Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathon. Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thrilling, wasn't it? (laughs) Don't you wish that was your quiet time this morning? Verses 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1. If you look at it closely, I think you'll find at least three different kinds of people in this text. That's who Matthew's trying to address. He's trying to find people who address themselves as insignificant. Because he wants to show them that they're significant. He wants to find another group of people to address who feel honored. But they've been humbled through suffering. Suffering. Then he wants to try to find another group of people who feel lowly in order to show them how they could be honored. And that's where I want you to try to locate yourself this morning, in one of those three groups. So let's take, tackle that first one first. The insignificant becomes significant. That's what we learn here in the genealogy. And as, you, as we started thinking about, uh, man, what, what is Marsh going to do with this text today? <laughs> This is crazy. I mean, you were probably thinking, what, what am I going to have for lunch? You just kind of is able to zone out. There's not a storyline to follow. It's just all these names, which you've never heard of before. And some of these names that are listed here in Matthew 1, they're only listed here. This is it. You could do a word search for them throughout your Bible, and this is the one place you'll find them. Names like Azor, Mathan, and Eliud. And we have no idea what these people are like. And then you've got other people who are in this genealogy that we know next to nothing about them. In other words, that are only mentioned one other time throughout the Scriptures. You see that with Obed, Shealtiel, and even Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't know much about him. So why does Matthew include such no-names? Well, I think he placed them there in order to show some of us, those of us who are fully convinced of our insignificance, that we're not alone. Those of us who know we, we, we're insignificant, those of us who do know that, we know that our great grandkids aren't going to know our names and they're not going to know our accomplishments. Did you know your great grandparents? If you did, what do you know about them? Well, I didn't know very much, so I did a little research, and um, here's what I found out I have eight biological great grandparents. We all do, actually. Eight. Eight great grandparents. And on my mom's side, my mom's side's all from Eulenburg County, Western Kentucky. You've got Shelva and Mary Bruce. You've got Elmer and Ora Knopfsinger. That's my mom's side. Then on my dad's side, all from Northern Kentucky, you have Leonard and Alma Wimhoff. And you've got Charles and Lida Hood. And the only one of those eight that I ever met, because she was the only one who was ever alive when I've been alive, was Mary Bruce my maternal grandfather's mother. It's the only one I knew. In fact, I just knew her as great-grandma Bruce. She died when I was about 15. I didn't even know her first name. I couldn't remember it. So I had to ask my mom and dad when I asked them for all these other names. And after I did my research, it makes me think that my great-grandkids aren't going to know who I am either. They're probably not going to know who you are. And the reason is is that most of us, we're not going to accomplish anything all that noteworthy. Pretty depressing, isn't it? (laughs) That we're going to be totally forgotten in 50 to 100 years. Nobody knows who we are. See, sure, there is something about this desire that we have intrinsically within us to be significant. That is equivalent to sinful pride. But there's also something about wanting to be remembered, wanting to have honor That's part of being in the image of God. See, we were all hardwired by God to be admired. To be admired in the same way that kids long to be admired by their parents. Uh, when Brooks was little, I mean, all my kids were little, they would say, Daddy, watch me, watch me, watch me. And one time when Brooks did this, he, he got on all fours and he lifted up one leg and he said, Daddy, do you like my new dance move? Of course, I said yes, but I didn't tell him he looked like a urinating dog. And he wasn't trying to be funny. He was trying to get me to say, that's awesome, buddy. You've got great moves. Because he knows that if he can get my attention, then he'll be noticed. And if his dad notices him, then he will feel significant. But there's a problem when we do this kind of thing, isn't there? Because we begin to mistake how to fulfill this need that we have to be significant, that we're hardwired for. We seek to fulfill that need by receiving praise from our fellow man. It happens when we need our spouse to not just love us, but give us a sense of meaning. It happens when we need our kids to not just respect us, but to give us a sense of worth. It happens when we post on social media and attempt to get as many likes as possible in order for us to get significance. See, but if we're really honest, we know this doesn't work. Because what does work is when we are admired by God. And he admires us not for our accomplishments, but he admires us because we're connected to his beloved son, Jesus. See, you and I, we are the Azores. We are the Eliads of our generation. And the only way we can become significant is the same way that Azor and Eliad became significant. And that's by being a part of Jesus's family. See, I think Azor and Eliad were just like us. They're just normal dudes who did normal things. And that's why we don't know who they are. I think they spent their time cooking food. They spent their time going to work and not always loving it. They spent their time worrying about their kids. Doesn't that sound like you and me? See, Jesus comes to us in our insignificance, and here's what he says. He says, if you will be a part of my family, I can make you significant. So it begs the question, are you a part? of Jesus' family. And if you're not, you don't have to do anything significant in order to get his attention. You already have his attention, and he's glad to graft your insignificant life into his family. Then your name will be added to all the Azords and Eliots. See, insignificant folk can become a part of Jesus' family tree in order to become significant. There's another group of people in this text, and they're kind of the Hall of Famers in here. They're kind of the heavy hitters. You've got Abraham and David and Jacob, and they're very unlike Azor and Eliot. Because Abraham, he's mentioned in the Bible 234 times, David is found 989, and Jacob 221. They serve very much as the who's who of the Bible, don't they? I mean, and they should in many ways. I mean, think about it. You have Abraham that all of us can trace our spiritual lineage back to. He's kind of a big deal. You've got David. He, he, he's the guy of all time that you would want to put down as a reference on your resume. I mean, he was called the man after God's own heart. He was extremely powerful. He led the kingdom of Israel to be at its very zenith. That's David. David. And then you've got Jacob, and no one could close a deal better than Jacob. And not many people were more honored than Jacob throughout all of the Bible because he has 12 sons, and when you live in a patriarchal society, that's better than having massive amounts of money. Twelve sons, Jacob could close a deal. But for all of David and Abraham and Jacob's accomplishments, they've got some noticeable blemishes, don't they? Remember Abraham? Abraham, he prostitutes his wife out not once, but twice. And he did it all to save his neck. And if you did that in our church, you know what would happen? You'd get excommunicated. Now you could repent and get back in, but you know, Abraham here. Abraham is who we draw our spiritual lineage back to, and he finds himself in Jesus' genealogy. Shocking! Then you've got David, he's an adulterer and a murderer. Then you've got Jacob, and he steals his birthright from his brother. And then he steals all kinds of stuff from his father-in-law Laban. But these are the supposed honored biblical heroes, aren't they? But they're all humbled by God. I mean, think about it. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his most precious earthly treasure, Isaac. And Abraham was never the same after that. He finally had some humility about him after Genesis 22. Then you've got David. David was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his adultery and about his murder. And it brings him to repentance. And that's what we find in the psalm that he penned, Psalm 51. And because he was confronted and because he responded in humility, David became a different person forever. The honored brought low. You've got Jacob. God sneaks up on Jacob in the middle of the night, wrestles him to the point that it knocks his hip out of socket so that he limps for the rest of his life. And that limp reminds Jacob that God wasn't going to let him be a jerk forever, to be a thief forever. So you see, even the significant people in Jesus' genealogy, the honorable people... They're brought very low. That's exactly what they needed. See, what all accomplished, honorable people need, one thing more than anything else, they need a strong dose of humility. Now, it's okay to be accomplished. It's okay to be talented. Many of you are. And in some ways, Abraham, David, and Jacob, they couldn't help but accomplish things because God was the one behind their accomplishments. But their pride always got the best of them. So God had to bring them low. And here's what they teach us. They teach us that success is dangerous. They teach us that success may not be a gift, but it might be a test. To be a test so that we might learn that success is easier to obtain than it is for our integrity to be maintained. See, maybe for some of us, we need God to do us a favor. We need God to bring us low during this Advent season. We need to taste the bitterness of our sin. We need to receive God's fatherly discipline so that our accolades don't fool us to think that we're connected to Jesus because we're so special. See, what God's fatherly discipline does, it's a gift. And it convinces us that our connection to Jesus is based on something very different than our accomplishments. But It's based on his sovereign, gracious choice. And that alone. So the insignificant become significant. That's what we learn in the genealogy. We learn that, that honored people are humbled, but then we see that those who are lowly are honored. I'm sure you caught this when we read through the genealogy, but there are some women mentioned in our genealogy. There's Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5. Bathsheba in verse 6, and then finally you have Mary in verse 16. See, it's extraordinary for Matthew to include women in Jesus' genealogy because women had no legal rights in the first century in the Middle East. And when you made up your, your lineage back in those days, when you laid out your family tree, you only included men because men were more valued than women. Shocking to have women in here. Those who are lowly are honored. But there's something more going on here. Don't you? Did you did you catch that too? You've got the inclusion of non Jews into Jesus' family tree. And they're the women. See, Rahab was a Canaanite, not a Jew. Ruth was a Moabite, not a Jew. And if you were a Jew, not only would you not have any women in your lineage. You wouldn't have any non-Jews in your lineage either because you wanted to look as religiously pure as possible in order for people to think well of you. But what makes the women's inclusion in Jesus' lineage most surprising isn't just the fact that they're women. It's not just that two of them weren't Jews. The thing that's most surprising is their reputation. Tamar seduced her father-in-law and then had his babies. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth made significant sexual advances toward Boaz. Bathsheba was used by a powerful man because she was sexually pleasing to him. And then there's Mary. We think well of Mary, but if you really think about it, Mary became pregnant when she wasn't married. So you can imagine what people thought of her when she began to swell up in the midsection a little bit. They began to ask her questions, and she had to swear up and down. It wasn't this cute Jewish boy that I'd been with, Joseph, that got me pregnant. It was God. Lots of people said that, I'm sure. And you shouldn't believe them. So she didn't have all that great of a reputation either. This is scandalous. These are the lowest of the low. They weren't male. They weren't Jewish. And they certainly, for the most part, weren't righteous. Didn't have a reputation of being righteous anyways. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a more unlikely group of candidates for Jesus' lineage than these women. So why did Matthew do it? He didn't have to. It was troublesome, I'm sure, for him to include these women. Because I think he wanted to put them in here so that we would know that Jesus can be proud of us too. Even despite our reputations, even despite our ethnicity, even despite our gender. See, Jesus makes insiders out of outsiders. He takes a hall of shame and makes it something that the rest of us can actually relate to. But zoom out. Zoom out when you look at all these names, the insignificant ones, the famous ones, the lowly ones, and you see that it doesn't really matter who you are or what you've done. All that matters is whether or not you are in the family of Jesus. See, he's the one who gives you an identity that will last. He's the one who came and died and rose again to include you on the list of names that follow verse 16. Because what the book of Matthew does and what the rest of church history does is it shows us that Jesus' family tree extends forward in much the same way that it extends backward. If you keep reading Matthew's gospel, you'll find a place where Jesus is contrasting his earthly family with the family of faith. It's in Matthew chapter 12. And it's there in Matthew 12 that Jesus asks this question. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's saying, who's my family? And then he points to his disciples that he's with and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. They're my family. But you know who else was present there besides the disciples when Jesus said that? His mother and his brothers. Can you imagine what they must have thought? They must have responded with Jesus. I'm going to use my uh, my, my redeemed imagination and just think about how they felt, right? I think they responded to Jesus and they're like, seriously? I mean, we know you're a little odd. But now you're out of your mind because we're the ones who are your relatives. We're blood, not everybody else. See, but what Jesus is trying to get them to do is to show them that his spiritual lineage includes the Azores, the Abrahams, and the Bathsheba's. What he was doing, I bet you when he's in this crowd of his other disciples and he starts saying, here are the people who have blown it, that I've humbled. He pointed at somebody else and said, hey, this person, insignificant, nobody knows anything about them, but they're my disciple. He points at somebody else and says, if you knew their reputation, you wouldn't think they're one of my disciples. He found some non-Jews. He, he found some women. He found some shameful people and said, these are my disciples. And I think if Jesus were here today, I think he'd do the same thing. I think he'd say, hey, before we go to after church and before we go to lunch, we're going to go on a walk. And I'm going to point to people that you have assumptions about, ones that you think are insignificant. And I'm going to point at some of them and I'm going to say, they're significant. They're in my family. I think he pointed at some other people with bad reputations and says, they're in my family. These people who have blown it, and you know about it. They're public people, people that everyone knows. Everyone's canceled. Yeah, they're in my kingdom too. See, we should stand in awe of this text, shouldn't we? The who Jesus chooses to be related to. We should also be surprised. And until you're surprised that Jesus has chosen you to be in his family, either because of your insignificance, you're surprised because you've been brought low, or you're surprised because of your gender, your ethnicity, your morality, your reputation, if you're not surprised, you'll never really understand Christmas. But if you are surprised, then you will understand that Christmas is a time to remember And reenact the shocking nature of Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you uh, cause us uh, to be surprised and be in awe? In Christ's name, amen. Just take a few minutes here. Uh, We'll take communion here, but um, we just want to build this into our service a time of uh, silence where this can get real personal for you, when you can kind of see, man, I needed to hear that the insignificant became significant. I needed to hear that despite your reputation, you can be included in Jesus' family. I, I, I've been brought low. I, I thought I was something, but now I know I'm not much. And to know that even though I've been brought low, I can be in Jesus' family. That's why I need to hear today. So which group do you relate to today? We'll come back up and take communion.